0: The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station.
1: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We have, for many months now, been talking more about the healthcare of the United States, both domestic policy and foreign policy, and not so much on healthcare insurance or healthcare policy in the United States directly, but trying to understand the geopolitical aspects of what's going on in this country. And today, during this holiday season, I wanted to do a program that focused on Christianity and the conflicts of Christianity, the persecution of Christians throughout time, and especially in current modern day across this country. across this world. Very few of us hear news reports or media reports on the persecution of Christians in other countries. That seems to be a topic or an issue that is just not broadcast to the American public. Our media tends to ignore it. So I want to take some time during this holiday period where we know that Christ sacrificed for us, that he was crucified, that he was persecuted during this time that we recognize Uh, his, his birth. And we know that the Lord sent his son to save us. And I wanted to go through a couple of presentations from a video that was put together called The Power of the Persecuted Church. And I wanted to give an example of the Muslim world and its persecution of Christians, the persecution of Christians throughout time from the Romans to modern day, but certainly today, Christians are under enormous pressure to denounce their religion or face death, fines, mutilation, insult, driven out of their own country because of their faith. And one Muslim in particular I want to highlight from this movie, and I want you to start to hear his presentation, because if we can only, as Christians, listen and understand what other faiths think about themselves and think about Christians, only then can we understand and have a language that connects to each other, understand either the hatred, the bigotry, the bias, the uninformed hatred that can exist between religions. So, let me turn this program over for a few minutes to this individual who was taught to hate Christians. And I want you to listen to his story because it is so powerful in understanding the Christian religion and the message of forgiveness, the message of love as opposed to hate, the way love can overcome hate the way that prayer can overcome bigotry and hatred, and people can be redeemed. So let me stop and let you listen to the first part of this story, and then I'll come in and I will ask some leading questions and try to
3: clarify the message that you're hearing i went to a government elite school We were all muslims and when they came a christian from southern sudan he was the only student in the school who was from southern sudan and it happened to be a christian and he came and sat next to me and his name was was zachariah i hated him i hated him because he's from southern sudan a different culture i hated him because he was a christian
2: so, Muhammad, you went to this elite school, and this new student sat next to you, and you hated him without knowing him. Why? You say because he was from southern Sudan, so you had a regional bias, but you hated him because he was a Christian. Now, tell me what what did you do? What did your classmates do to this person that you were trained to? You were brought up in your religion to hate Christians. What did your
3: classmates, what did you and your classmates do to this new student? We caused him lots of problems. Like uh, in in the class, whatever problem happened, it all ended up with him. You know, we hit him, we beat him like nearly every single day.
2: So, Muhammad, you and your fellow students hated this individual whose name was Zacharias, And what did he do when you attacked him so viciously, when you blamed him for everything in the class? What was his
3: response? But what struck me, he was very nice. And then I thought, how can an unbeliever be so nice and so smart? You know, I had this picture about Christians are immoral, Christians are like the bad people. You know, morally, he was the best one in the class. And you insult him, he always smiles at you. You do bad things to him, he's never hitting back. And this actually struck me inside, you know. And I started even to hate him more because of that.
2: So, Muhammad, somehow you understood internally that he really wasn't a bad guy, that he actually was more moral and more upright and smarter than most of the people you had met who were non-Christians. But that created a greater anger in you. So what did you do? What did you and your friends do with this increased anger to somebody who was not responding to the kind of hatred that you were giving them? They were coming back with smiles and love, if you will, on, on the behalf of that person. So what did you and your friends
3: do at that point? And then one day I said to my friends, we need to kill the Zachariah. We need to kill him because he's a Christian, and we need actually to uh, clean the school from an unbeliever. And in one night, we attacked him. We attacked him in the wood, in the forest. Uh, In a very dark night, he was walking under a tree, and we climbed on the tree and we waited for him. And when he came... We jumped on him, and we had our guns because we had a military training that time, and we hit him so bad, and he was crying, was shouting, and one of the guys was um, um, like... Uh putting his hand in his mouth, you know, and I was in the top of him and the other one. So we hit him so bad, and he was almost dead. He almost died. And I said to my friends, okay, then leave him, because we injured him so badly that he will definitely die. And we left him in the wood in the middle of this dark night so that he will die. And Zachariah never came back again to school.
2: So Mohammed help us as Christians to understand the kind of hatred that you had ingrained in your own thinking, in your classmates' thinking. If we can just understand where this hatred comes from, maybe we can cross over that bridge and live in sort of mutual harmony and respect for each other. That certainly is the way Christians, I think, are supposed to be Uh, brought up. And a true Christian would be allowing others to have their faith. They may not believe in their faith, but they don't hate them for their faith. Certainly periods of time in our history that there have been conflicts based upon religious differences, but that's not what my faith has ever shown. So give us an understanding of how this hatred that you have
3: Actually developed and manifested itself in your heart. I personally used to hate Christians. I have never had a Christian friend. I have never visited a church. I have never seen a Bible in my entire life. But I was taught in the Quran school to hate Jews and Christians. Even though I've never knew what they believe in. The problems happens in the minute when you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And the minute that you say Jesus Christ died for me and rose again, and the minute that you get baptized, so when this happened, people got persecuted. They get persecuted from their families. They get persecuted from the um, uh, from the Islamic uh, Ummah. They get persecuted from the governments. The word Ummah comes from the Arabic word Um, and Um means mother. And so, like, even in Europe, where, like, you have a free society, you have a laws, still people get persecuted from their own families, because religion in the Islamic society is not a private thing. Like, in the, in the Western society, religion is part of life. In our society, life is part of religion. This means the society, the ummah, is everything that you have, and you cannot live without this Ummah, collectively. One of the biggest uh, elements why persecution is so severe in the Islamic world, because of this Ummah, you cannot break out of it.
2: You know, Muhammad, that is such a profound concept, that in the West, religion is just a part of life, and in the Muslim world, religion is life. And that difference is maybe just a bunch of words to some people, but if you think about it in some depth, it means that you cannot really leave your religion behind in any way. You cannot change your religion, which is what we sort of hear and understand about why the um, Islamic world is sort of a theocracy within those countries. It's not a democracy, and it never will be. So we have a very rare opportunity here to gain some insight as to why there is such a conflict between Christianity and the Muslim world. So if you had this conflict and you started to see and understand the Christian identity, what happened with your family as you converted from
3: Muslim to Christianity? Even though my family, they were really fanatic Muslims, I had a very good family. So that's why my family was very important to me. So when I told my father that I became a Christian, and I used the word Christian, you know, and I think that was a problem. And that was the first time that I saw his crying. And then he said to me, we cannot accept you. And I had to leave home. That was one of the most devastating moments in my entire life. I walked out from my family and knowing never to be back again. And I, I remember these things as if it was yesterday. And the most painful thing was not just leaving. Like a couple of days later, I bought the normal newspaper that we have in Khartoum, just reading it. And then in the last page, I will see a big picture of me, my picture in the newspaper, as a death announcement. So my family, they declared me to be dead. I no longer left. And not only that, they brought a coffin. They made a funeral. And they said, our son is dead. And they brought this coffin to the cemetery. And they buried it there. And up to in our village, there is a, a tomb in the cemetery, a grave in the cemetery where my name is written there. That was one of the moment which was very, 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 very difficult.
2: You know, Muhammad, it is rare for our audience to hear from an individual the story that is probably replicated hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times in children as they're growing up in an Islamic Muslim uh, culture and family. So I want to continue this story of yours because it is so emblematic of the conflicts and the misunderstandings between Christians and Muslims. So let's take a quick break, and I want to come back, and I want to complete this story and then get into more history of religious persecution
0: If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly
2: confidential.
1: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today, we are talking about segments from a movie, a segment of uh, a video that was put together Called The Power of the Persecuted Church. And not many people have viewed this on YouTube, but I think it's important. As I did my research on the persecution of Christians during this holiday period, this particular video really struck me as a message from several people, but in particular, today at this segment, I want to complete the interview with a gentleman I call Muhammad from Khartoum in the Sudan area of the world in Africa. And he's talking about his Muslim upbringing, his hatred for Christians. And I think it gives us an insight into what millions and millions of people across this world who are of the Islamic faith are Muslims and why they are brought up in a culture of hatred towards Christians. And so it's not just an interview with this one individual, but it's an insight that all of us as Christians ought to have about how this conflict is generated from the earliest ages of all of us. That a religion that espouses hatred of others is affecting our daily lives and our future as the Islamic religion continues to expand, as the governmental structures Um, formed under this religion are threatening the United States and the Judeo-Christian values and beliefs that we have. So I want to go back to Muhammad because now we know he has converted to being Christian after being a hater of Christians in his youth and a persecutor of some of his classmates. Now he has converted to Christianity because of his own readings and teachings and the example of that student that said, wait a second, maybe there is a different way to live. There's a a way of loving and caring and that Christ will forgive the sins that you have. So he's become a Christian, but now he's going to be persecuted for his faith. So, Muhammad, tell us about what happened to the persecution and the problems that you got into
3: after your conversion to Christianity. So I was arrested several times. And the last time I was arrested, I was arrested for seven weeks. They brought me to a place where they bring normally, uh, not just normal criminals, they bring those who are in opposition to the government. We came into this prison... And outside you could hear the screaming of people already. People are screaming. But inside, people are being beaten up with cables, you know, tied on the walls. Men are screaming naked. And it was, it has a very bad smell. And I could still smell it as I speak about it now. I did not know from where the smell came. They brought me to a basement downstairs. It was very dark. No light came in. And they brought me in a small cell. When they arrested me, the only thing that I could take with me was my Bible and a handkerchief handkerchief was brought to me by a group from the YMCA, from Germany, they were visiting Khartoum. I took this with me, and I was glad that I took it with me, because this handkerchief became everything for me during this time. I used it as a pillar, I used it as a bed on the ground, because the floor was so hard. So this room was so small. I could not stand, and I could not sit. I could not lay down and exchange. And this bad smell came very, very, very strong. So the next day, when the guard was coming with his torch, bringing food to me, I would see like in the floor, so many dead bodies.
2: So, Muhammad, you were arrested um, for two reasons, as I'm hearing you state. One was uh, really maybe the first charge that they would make was being against the state. So your religion is the cause of that. So the second item is they're arresting you for your Christianity, but only because they then link that Christianity to the state and you're violating the state and you're uh, being uh, sub submissive and you're not being submissive to the state interests you're being subversive to the state and that's why they're throwing you into this terrible prison that's not just an ordinary lockup but it is for the dissenters in the country uh, that they feel threatened by their religion so tell me more tell this audience more about what happened to you
3: in that dungeon area so i went through a lot of persecution but where did I find my comfort? I find my comfort actually in two things. First of all, when I start to recite or to read the Lord's Prayer. Like the Lord's Prayer starts, Our Father in Heaven. And there I got to know a God. It's not that the one who created me in His image and left me but the God that I could call Him Father. There I found my identity and my destiny in it. And whenever I prayed, I prayed, I looked to God as He's my Father, that I could always come to Him. And I know a day will never come where this Father will tell to me, You are no longer my son.
2: Well, Muhammad, you give us great insight to the strength that you had with your faith, even in that uh, terrible uh, prison dungeon area that you were in. Now, as you came out of that, what were the lessons that maybe you learned? Because the idea of standing up for your religion, of knowing that you have a father in heaven is a kind of a link to the father that you had, biological father, that then uh, dismissed you, that said you were dead once you gave him an idea of who you were, and he didn't like it. So you were dead to him, but now your father in heaven in your Christian faith will never give up on you, will always forgive you, will always accept you, is always there for you. So, what did you learn? about the politics of religion in different cultures, how do do you think they view it now that you've looked back on this Um, and maybe the European view
3: and then the view of uh, your home state? This society is not as secure as we think and whoever put his trust in a system, in a political system or a social system You know, he will be a loser at the end of the day. We need to start to practice and to put our trust in Jesus, even in this easy time. And then when persecution comes, we are already living a relationship with Jesus. And only Jesus, and really only Jesus, could bring us through.
2: So, Muhammad, going back to your time in prison, what was it about your faith That helped you through? What were the things that you were able to hold on to uh, to keep your mind from going insane, to keep you wanting to live and suffer through whatever it was going to take, whatever persecution they were going to cast upon you? Uh, How did you get through this
3: period of time? What carried me in this time were two things. The Bible verses that I learned by heart because I was not even able to read my bible because I did not have any light and the second thing what kept me alive I was holding into this handkerchief every single day and this handkerchief became like gave me hold not because of the practical use of it Because of the Bible verse that was written on it. And it was this Bible verse The Lord is my light and my refuge. And in this dark moment, He was my light and my refuge. And I could see that. I could see that even though the cell is so dark. But there I experienced the reality. Jesus being the light of the world. So,
2: Muhammad, your story of faith is one of using that faith to get through persecution after having found Jesus Christ and your faith so important to you that you uh, gave up your family, your family decided you were dead, you've suffered through persecution this entire time. Now, after those seven weeks imprisonment, Uh, You traveled the world, and then you came back. Tell us about the end of the story, which is so powerful in my mind from what I've heard, on how this story of your faith uh, came to a conclusion when you went back uh, to
3: Africa and ultimately to uh, uh, teach in Egypt. I went the first time back to the Middle East after many years, and I went to Egypt, and I was teaching in Cairo, in a seminary there. And then after my teaching was done, a sudden Sudanese came to me uh, with his gray hair, and, uh, and he came to me and he started to speak to me. He asked me where I came from. I told him my name, my family name, and where I lived in Khartoum. And, and this pastor started to cry. And then I asked him, why are you crying? And then he looked at me and he said to me, do you remember me? told him I can't remember you I have never met you and then he would look me into the eye straight into the eye and he would say to me my name is Zachariah so that was this person that I almost killed one day I met him 25 years later and the minute he said his name I saw his broken arm and his broken leg and I saw the injuries in his face in his face. The injuries in his face where actually I damaged him. I saw his eye, which was which he no longer see because we injured him. And it came a, a silent moment where I didn't know what to say. I expected many things that he would say. But one thing I never expected to hear from him. Zakaria would look me straight into my eye and said to me, Yasser, because you hated me so much, you persecuted me so much, I always prayed for you. And on that moment in Cairo, in the year of 2007, I grasped why God was deal was a person like me. Because Zakaria prayed for me. I hated him. He prayed for me, persecuted him. He prayed for me. He moved his broken arm, got his back, opened his back, He took his Bible out, he opened it, and in the first page, he wrote my name, and he was praying 25 years for me. That's the answer to persecution, to hate, is prayer.
2: Muhammad, what a great testimony to your faith, to redemption, to prayer, the power of prayer, the... Ability of one human being to affect another human being. If we can only take that lesson and spread it to millions and millions of people, both Christians and to uh, Muslims, this place, this world would be a better place. Join us again this next session because we're going to delve deeper into the persecution of Christians across this country in modern day times. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org.
0: Go to our site and please make a generous tax deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
2: Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, one to two, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from one to two, the On Point with Victor show only right here on America's
1: Web Radio.
0: The views, opinions and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station.
1: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Welcome back to the third segment this week of Healthcare Insight. This week we are looking at uh, Christian persecution across the world. We just heard in the last two segments a very powerful individual story from Muhammad, who hated Christians, came through that process as a youth, Uh, was experiencing the love and prayers of a fellow student and years later came to Christ and then realized the errors of his way in his youth and confronted that at the end. We heard that at the end of the last segment. So what I want to do with this segment and the last segment that will come after this is to talk about um, the conflicts worldwide. Let's take it from an individual story of Muhammad to a much broader picture, so hopefully we gained insights during the last two segments that we can now better understand that, in fact, across the world, most Muslims are very peaceful, they accept others' religions, and it only seems to be when we get to the extremists that take over governmental structures, like in Iran, or now Afghanistan, and some other countries where the extremist view becomes a theocracy, where They are intolerant of other religions. They persecute other religions very openly as if those individuals are going to be subversive to the theocracy that is being set up. So there is no acceptance of Christianity, and Christians are very much persecuted in that um, uh, situation. So I want to have a discussion in this segment of a gentleman named Jason Peters who is the voice of martyrs, and he's written a book called I Am and the Letter N, I Am N. And he's going to explain where that title came from and some of the um, symbols uh, that are in his book. So, um, Mr. Peters, uh, give us a little bit of background on that book and where this title came from.
5: Many people uh, have seen the symbol on social media and other places. It looks kind of like a, a U with a dot on top of it, but it's the Arabic letter uh, of noon, as you mentioned. It's the first letter of the word that defines Christians in the Quran. Uh, Nazarene is really where it comes from. You know, Christian, uh, the singular for Christian is Nazrani, which comes from uh, Nazarene and Jesus of Nazareth, of course. So when they spray painted this symbol on your home, you were marked, you were tagged. And the question was, how would you respond? And the stories in the book are remarkable about the choices that Christians made to stand firm in their faith.
2: So now we know that Christians in non-Christian countries can be marked, their homes can be marked, they can be identified as being Christians and subject to potential um, persecution. So how do Christians in a non-Christian uh, government run by Muslims, for example, how do they deal with this kind of of threat or pressure?
5: Well, it's interesting. I've been surprised by how matter-of-fact they are about their faith. And one, in fact, said this. He said, uh, I was born a Christian and I will die a Christian. And of course, uh, he was so committed to his faith that he was unwilling to give it up no matter what the consequences were. And you think about it, it's a, it's a very distinct choice that we have to make. And each one of us uh, has to make this choice every day. Are we going to follow Christ or not? And I don't think for most of us in the United States, it's ever this sort of clear you know what I mean? It's not this defined one moment. You're tagged, and you have to choose. Will you follow Christ, or will you abandon your faith? Uh, and so for those Christians who made that decision, uh, it's to me, it's very inspirational.
2: Ms. Peters, in your book, you have a great story of an individual uh, in Mosul, and uh, where ISIS comes in and how they try to escape with uh, their faith, their religion, And amazing, miraculous things tend to occur along the way. Can you tell us about that story?
5: Well, there is a story that begins the book, the story of Abu Fadi. And he had choices to make early on. He said, I know that they're coming. ISIS is coming. In fact, he received a phone call from a friend saying, hey, ISIS is coming. We have to decide, you know, how we're going to respond and they knew that the stakes were very high. Uh, he chose to, uh, to take his family out. And it was amazing the miraculous encounters that he had along the way. That's something that we hear a lot about is supernatural interventions. I mean, the way that God shows up in these stories is remarkable. I mean, some of the examples are uh, angels delivering people, uh, guards being distracted uh, so that they can run away. I mean, it's just incredible. But I met with a Christian who said that what happened was over the course of 10 days, ISIS changed their tactics a bit. When they arrived in Mosul, it was June of 2014, they initially were announcing on loudspeakers, Christians, here are your options. You know, they were spray painting the, the noon on people's homes and Christian-owned businesses. Uh, but then, as they noticed all the Christians leaving this brother I met with said that they began to stop the Christians at checkpoints and they began to to take things away from them. As I I think they started to see the loot kind of sneaking out the back door and they said, wait a minute, we we want that stuff. And so they began to really uh, attack Christians even as they were trying to leave.
2: Well, we certainly don't hear any of these stories of Christian persecution from the United States uh, media. Um, But as a Christian why is it important for us to know these stories, to know about these individuals, whether it's Muhammad that we heard in our earlier sessions or the individuals that you're talking about in your new book?
5: Yeah, I'm really glad that this government has recognized the plight of these Christians. And I'm not running for president, so I don't have a, a case for... Uh whether or not it's genocide in the, in the uh, actual definition of, of the word. Uh, it's not about ethnic uh, cleansing. It's really about Christian faith and identity, um, and I think that's, that's a distinction. But those are nuances. The, the bottom line is these are our Christian family members. They are brothers and sisters who are really uh, suffering. It's about the body. We're the body of Christ. And so when one suffers, we all suffer. Of course, you you know, uh, one of the theme verses of, of our ministry is Hebrews 13.3. We want to remember those who are suffering as if we ourselves were suffering and, and to pray for those who are in prison as if we were going through a similar experience.
2: So, Mr. Pierce, these families that are being persecuted, that are being uh, disowned by their families, uh, maybe marked by the government, maybe they're even in hiding. What do they want the most? from other Christians like us around the world? What can we best do uh, to help them?
5: I'm glad you asked, and I think you know the answer because you've met with so many persecuted Christians over the years. What they want first is prayer. That's what they want. They say, pray for us. We, we really we need God's help in this situation. And they have a strong faith in, in, in prayer, and they've seen miracles. They've seen God deliver, and so they ask for prayer. I always like to uh, hear them say this too. They say, "And by the way, we're praying for you." Have you ever heard them say that? <laughs> uh, because they say uh, we don't know what's coming to the United States of America, but they ask for prayer, but they also ask for practical help. You know, and so we're able to provide very practical help. Sometimes it involves you know rebuilding a home of someone whose home was burned down by extremists, or or maybe providing uh, some refuge for them in, in a safe house. Uh, you know, I was just in Egypt not too long ago, where we have literally believers living in safe houses, because if discovered, they will be killed by their family.
2: We don't hear much about the various laws in some of these um, non-Christian uh, countries, Muslim countries. We heard about it from Muhammad in earlier segments about blasphemy against the, uh, the government, um, of being subversive against the government. So what do Christians think about these laws that might exist, like a blasphemy law, and what it means to their faith? and their ability to live in these countries with those kinds of pressures and laws.
5: Well, there's sort of this uh, malleable law that can be adjusted. And, and by the way, just being accused of it, is a serious crime, as we've seen with Assia Bibi. Who knows exactly what happened at that well in her conversation? But now she's five years plus, you know, in prison uh, after this accusation. And of course, uh, has been sentenced and then appealed. And, and it, I mean, it's just and, and now two. We know of at least two defenders of her and uh, opponents of the anti or the blasphemy law who have been killed. So it's interesting to think about the fact that just to say something that's perceived as negative against the prophet. It, Mohammed uh, could land you uh, in prison and perhaps even facing the death penalty.
2: You know, it sounds to me like the um, the blasphemy and religious zealotry that we had in the United States um, during the Salem witch trials, where people were accused and then they burned at the stake or hung. So this type of thing is not unusual in history, even in our own United States, in our own faith of the Puritans and the pilgrims and uh, the conflicts that they had with other religions or weren't as pure as they, but these things do pass, they do change, but the Muslim community is now uh, 25% of the world's population, and as it continues to grow and as governments uh, begin to take on this theocracy, um, I don't know if there's a chance for changing it like what happened after the Salem Witch Trials, where people were able to freely move away and then change those types of attitudes. So what do you think might happen here in the United States as we move forward? Will this come to our shores?
5: Yes, we are experiencing persecution in sort of civil ways now, I believe. But I also think it's going to become more pronounced. I really do. I think that as long as we continue to talk about the exclusive claims of Christ, we're going to face opposition. This is what Jesus promised. He said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. And so I, I love um, the way that he told his disciples to prepare, though, in Luke 21. He said, uh, you're going to face persecution. You're going to be taken before the civil authorities, synagogues, governors. He said, uh, but don't worry about what you're going to say. He said, I'm going to give you words and wisdom that your enemies will not be able to resist, they won't be able to contradict. And to me, that's a great encouragement, because I do believe that the day will come standing before a court for saying the things that we say, which are, Jesus is the only way, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. It's for things like saying uh, Islam is not a religion of peace, which is the politically correct way to identify uh, Islam. It's simply not true. If you go back and look at the, the roots of Islam, it's not a religion of peace.
2: Boy, talk about politically incorrect. You say anything like that against the Muslim religion and you're considered to be Islamophobic. So how do you talk to Muslims today in a way that gets them to see and understand that um, the beginnings of the Muslim religion was not peaceful at all and carries over into today's world?
5: In fact, when I was just recently meeting with a pastor in Iraq, he said what he's doing is he's frequently now finds himself talking to Muslims and saying, tell me this, what is different between what ISIS is doing right now and what Muhammad did? And he said they have no response. He said 1,400 years ago, Muhammad was doing the same things that ISIS is doing today.
2: So, Mr. Peters, is this happening around the world and? Um... What are some of the stories maybe that um, you've captured uh, to show the Christian faith of forgiveness and acceptance of their lot of being persecuted um, with the strength of their faith?
5: And there are, there are nine hotspots around the world that we could, we could talk about where Islamic extremists are attacking Christians. And even the children, you know, for us, it doesn't seem quite fair that these young children have to make choices like this.
2: So give me some examples of the forgiveness of terrible tragedies of hurt or pain and prosecution, but that this strong faith in Jesus Christ by this community that's in the Middle East and around the world where they're being persecuted, that they can stand by their religion. How is that even possible?
5: I don't know. It's just God's supernatural intervention. That's all I can say, to be honest. There's no human explanation. How can you look at someone who has raped your daughter and say, because Christ has forgiven me. I choose to forgive you. you know, and, But here's the interesting thing. ISIS fighters are being reached by this type of forgiveness. I mean, we're hearing stories about people saying, hey, uh, this God is different than my God. You know, my God says to hate and to kill the kafir, to, to kill the infidel. Your God says love and forgive.
2: Well, at the end of the day, Mr. Peters, that is the bottom line, that Christianity is about love and Islam in the extremist view, is about hatred and conquering and controlling a population. So let's continue this discussion after this commercial break, because I think our audience is finding this very interesting and very insightful uh, to our own religious beliefs. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, one to two, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from one to two. The On Point with Victor show only right here on America's Web Radio.
1: Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If
0: you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm on Liquidation Service at Outlook.com or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential.
1: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio. And today we're talking about Christianity versus Muslims, the conflicts, The persecution of Christians in Muslim uh, countries and theocracies. But in this last segment, I want to broaden that uh, perspective on Christian persecution because it's not just happening in Muslim theocracies. Let's take a look at some of the more recent uh, persecution of Christians in what we normally think of as democratic countries, Um, the country of India. We know that there are a lot of problems and issues over there, but Uh, It's mostly a um, a Hindu country, and let's talk about how Hindus may be persecuting Christians in India, and how that is becoming more widespread than anybody would ever expect, and we certainly won't hear any of this from our national media. So I want to talk today, in this final segment, to um, Todd Nettleton, and Todd is um, a representative from the Voice of the Martyrs, and... He will tell us and give us some idea of what's going on in India, which is very disturbing uh, to Christians. So, Todd, uh, give us an idea of what's happening in the democratic country of India that's run mainly by Hindus.
4: Well, just in the past two months, including one just last weekend, we have seen five Christians who have been killed in India in four different states. So it's not all in one particular area. This is in four different states all across India, five Christians, four men and one woman killed simply for their faith in Jesus Christ.
2: These attacks and murders are something most of us would never have thought could happen in what we consider to be a generally friendly country uh, to American values and to religious freedom. Um, Give us a little more detail about uh, these deaths and why they occurred or how they occurred or any other background that you can share with our audience.
4: Well, one of the persons who was killed was a man named Samara, a teenager, literally not even 20 years old, He was part of three families that came to faith in Christ in their village back in 2017. Uh, A pastor and a church planter was able to visit the village. He was able to share the Christian faith and Samaru's family and two other families came to faith that made the village elders very angry. You know, who, who is this pastor? Why is he coming in here and causing trouble leading people to Jesus Christ? So they basically persecuted the pastor to the point that he couldn't come back to the village. He, it wasn't safe for him to even enter the village. Samaru, again, just a teenager, stepped up and really took leadership of the, the Christian families in that village. He said, hey, I'm here, we can gather together, I can read the scripture, Uh, we can talk about what we're reading in the Bible. So he he kind of became the lay pastor for this little tiny church in the village. But uh, three years later, the, the persecution has continued, and early in June... Men, radical Hindus, came to Samaru's house in the evening. They knocked on the door saying, "Uh, we want to meet with you, come with us. They took Samaru and two other young men into the forest. The two other young men, realizing that that this was not a meeting, this was actually an attack, they escaped, uh, but Samaru did not get away, and he was killed. His body was found the next day.
2: Well, that certainly is an unforgivable tragedy, and a horror that shouldn't be imposed on anybody for their religion. So if we were to try to draw something out of this, a lesson out of this, is there an inspiration that you see that may be helpful to others that this Christian was willing to put up with the persecution and death that might inspire others as opposed to being turned off and turned away by others because they're going to be afraid of this type of persecution?
4: The inspiring thing to me is this is a young man, a teenager. He's only been a Christian for three years. So it's not somebody who, you know, went to seminary or or had this long walk with Christ to prepare him for that ultimate sacrifice. And yet he was willing. He was willing to step up and lead when no one else would. And he was willing to lay down his life for Christ in June.
2: Well, Todd, this is such a, a tragic story. Uh, a lesson for all of us in challenging our own faith, whether we could ever have um, uh, accepted and tolerated and and pushed our faith to the limit that we are willing to give the ultimate sacrifice. How many of us wonder in that situation how we would have responded and how we would have held to our faith? But you said this is happening in many areas around India. Um, Can you tell us what that means is it just isolated instances, uh, rogue uh, killers of Christians, or is this uh, sending a stronger uh, message and meaning across the country that um, Christians ought to be more aware of?
4: Well, the concern is that that persecution is on the rise all over India, and you know, if it, if it was one village or one state, and you could kind of say, "Yeah, things are really hard there," but look at these other places. But when you see people in four different states within such a short span of time being killed, uh, it it really reflects the attitude and and the atmosphere for Christians all over India. They are under pressure and uh, the government, the national government is led by Hindu nationalists, people who believe that Indian soil is Hindu soil Every person in India should be a Hindu, uh, and so this type of behavior, the, people think they can get away with it. They think there won't be repercussions if a Christian is attacked, even if they're killed. They think that they can get away with it because of that sort of prevailing attitude all over the country.
2: Okay, Mr. Nittelman, you said that um, it's pervasive uh, attitude about anti-Christian in um, India, Uh, Let's take these uh, five deaths and uh, get our audience to understand a little bit more about what happened after this. Are they just dismissed? Are they not investigated? Is the government at least trying to apply the laws uh, against murder? Uh, Is anything happening to these individuals that you're aware of at this point in time? Has anybody been prosecuted? Has anybody been jailed? Give us some background in this area on these particular deaths.
4: In the course of the five murders that have been committed, I, I know there are arrests in at least two of them. I'm, I'm not sure completely, uh, but the question, you know, even once the arrest is made, does that mean this person will really be held accountable? Or is this something where the local police want to say, hey, yeah, we're, we're investigating. Look, we've arrested these people. We need to watch closely to see what happens as far as charges, what happens with the trial, and if justice is really pursued in these cases.
2: So being a Christian in India is obviously a difficult time. Can you give us a little bit more background on some of the other issues that you've seen? You've got uh, ministries um, throughout India. Uh, what are some of the others? Um, ministries uh, seeing or hearing about these stories or other stories of Christians and their persecution and how are the families of some of these young people who are being murdered and tortured how are those families um, dealing with this kind of a a hostile environment
4: well one of the uh, amazing stories that we've heard from from one of the men who was killed his name was Condi. He came to faith in Christ in 2018. Immediately, he led his brothers to Christ as well. And so even, you know, from his first days as a Christian, he was an evangelist. Also from his first days as a Christian, he was persecuted. Uh, his house was attacked back in 2018. Uh, again, just 10 days before he was killed, his house was attacked again. And at that time, Condi told his wife, he said, listen, These people are not going to give up. They they are going to continue harassing and persecuting us. They may even kill me. But he told his wife, he said, I I want you to know, even if they kill me, I want you to be faithful to follow Jesus Christ. I want you to stay strong in your faith. So even in the days before he was killed, he was preparing his wife and strengthening her faith to remain
2: faithful So tell me about the wife now. After the husband was killed, how did she deal with her faith? And how strong was her faith, given that she saw what happened to her husband? He was murdered, broke up the family. Where did she go? Because in Hinduism and in India, so much is dependent upon the head of the household, the male, and a female without a husband can be shunned in many ways, is my general understanding. So what happened to the wife after uh, her husband was murdered?
4: His wife's name is Bindu. They have uh, two daughters. After Kandi was killed, Bindu went to live with her father, who is still a Hindu. And one of the first things he said to her was, listen, you have brought all this trouble on yourself by being a Christian. Why don't you come back to Hinduism? And so even after her husband had been killed, her own father Pressured her to renounce Christ and to come back to Hinduism. She has remained faithful. She has said, No, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, And so her faith has remained strong.
2: Well, Mr. Nettleton, two questions. One, how can your organization help people like this who find that they have been a victim of this kind of atrocity? And how do you do it in today's world with the uh, coronavirus?
4: Voice of the Martyrs has been able to provide some help in her case, hopefully getting her to a safe place. Uh, One of the challenges right now for our contacts in India is the coronavirus because they can't necessarily go out to the village where these attacks have taken place. It's much harder for them to travel even within the country. Uh, And so that's one of the challenges that we're trying to overcome to be able to provide help in these cases.
2: So, Todd, tell us what we in America and other Christians around the world can do to help this situation. I know you'd like to give us some tangible activities to do, but I'm sure also uh, some fundraising and your organization does a terrific job of reaching out and trying to help these people where it requires some actual um, funding.
4: There's a couple things we can do. And then the first thing you mentioned is prayer. We can pray for these families. I think particularly of widows and children who lost their, their fathers. We can pray for them. We can pray that God will support and sustain them during this time. A second thing we can do is provide help. Voice of the Martyrs offers help to families of martyrs. If people give to Voice of the Martyrs and just mark their gift for families of martyrs, it will go to help in cases like these that have happened in India. The third thing that I think we can do as uh, at least American citizens is make sure our elected officials know that, that this is something we care about. Religious freedom, protecting religious minorities in India and in other places in the world, that's something we think about when we go into the ballot box. That's important for our leaders to know.
2: Well, audience, I hope you've stayed with us through this and heard the stories that uh, the persecution of Christians is happening in various parts of uh, around the world. It's not just the um, Muslim community. We went through the details there. We heard individual stories. We heard the uh, geopolitical issues that are developing with theocracies and the suppression and uh, the persecution of Christians, but it's happening also in in India, a Hindu country, and it's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, So just as we go through this holiday season, recognizing the birth of Jesus, the message of Christianity, of love and forgiveness, that this um, presentation today, I hope, uh, emphasizes that message that while there are persecutions, we need to overcome them, we need to change the world, we need to bring more love rather than hate, we need to bring more neighborliness rather than uh, fighting among ourselves as as human citizens of this world. So I hope this message during this holiday season resonates well with the individual stories we've talked about and the broader geopolitical issues. So join us again next week on America's Web Radio for Healthcare Insight. The views, opinions, and content of the show
0: hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station.
2: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.